How's everybody doing tonight? Good to see you. I do want to just read a verse before we get started. Uh, verse 20 of Romans chapter 3, Paul says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There's no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Again, I said one verse. I think I read about four or five there, didn't I? Does everybody have a study guide for tonight? Everybody have one. If you don't, it should say at the top, Understanding Islam Part 3. Uh, the, let me, let me see which one. I didn't bring two down here. Is it? Huh? Okay. You must have picked up one out there. Okay. But you got three, right? Should, should, should be, should be three. Here's more threes. Anybody need, need more threes and more over here too? Anybody need them? Okay. Rick, if you'd take a couple to this side over there. that everybody? Well, tonight we will finish. We have to. And I almost got finished last time. Um, where I want to begin tonight, it's, it's always difficult just to jump into something after, you know, I kind of regret. We did one, we took a night off, a week off. We did two, we took another night off. It makes it kind of disjointed in our minds, doesn't it? So first of all, tonight, if you're taking notes, uh, put review. Let's spend a moment reviewing. Number one, review. Again, uh, class, what is the most populous Muslim country? Indonesia. Some are surprised to find out it's not in the Middle East. It's Indonesia. There are some key, and I'm going to go pretty fast here, okay? So just... Hang on tight because I really want to get down to sharing the gospel, what, what the Muslims believe as far as salvation, sharing the gospel with them. And that's how we're going to close out tonight. And I want to repeat to you what I've repeated the previous two times too. I'm, I'm not a Muslim scholar, don't claim to be. Okay? Some of you in here may have had far more exposure to it than me. So uh, you may ask, you may ask me a question about it, and I say, I don't know. We'll have to go find the answer together, but that'll be okay too, right? Okay? There's some keys to understanding the Muslim faith that are essential. What is absolutely primary in Islam is a total belief in Allah, the Arabic term for God. This is a review of Lesson 1. Muslims also believe that Allah has spoken to the world through Muhammad, the final, ultimate, greatest prophet according to Islam. The Quran is pivotal to all Muslims. This is the holy book of Muslims. It should be recited in Arabic 
and memorized and studied but never questioned. By the way, saying Muslims, I know up until 84, 19, around 1984, people would say Muslim, M-O. Uh, they prefer now Muslim with a U. Muslim uh, carries with it an offensive negative connotation to the Muslim today. So uh, M-U, not M-O. Islam is a religion of law. Islamic law extends to every conceivable area of life. Uh, Sharia is the Arabic term for way or path, and Muslims believe that Islamic law is God's law or way. And the scope of Sharia is quite amazing to most non-Muslims. Every area of one's life is regulated under Sharia law. Contrary to popular opinion, Muslims do not believe that their religion began with Muhammad. They assert that Islam uh, started at creation when God created Adam and Eve and that Islam was the religion of faithful Jews and Christians. And so Jews at the time of Moses were in actuality Muslims and Christians in the time of Jesus were Muslims. Now, when we say Islam, understand that all Muslims are not any more a monolithic group than Christians are. Islam is divided into two basic sects, the Sunnis and the Shiites. The Sunnis make up about 85 to 90 percent of all Muslims today. Uh, the Shiites are a more radical, more of an apocalyptic, end-of-world-time uh, sect. And the primary Shiite nation, as we said in the first session, is Iran. Uh, Sufism is a third faction within Islam. It's more the mystical uh, is Islam. It's not always received very well by uh, conservative Orthodox Muslims. Uh, but they are seeking after a more direct personal relationship with Allah. Now, historically, Sufism has been very missionary and has helped the spread of Islam around the globe. Sufism has. Even though, again, it's not viewed that highly by some conservative Orthodox or fundamentalist Muslims. We talked about major beliefs within Islam, and again, I'm going over this again because this is going to come into play later on when we get into talking about salvation, um, and it's going to help you to kind of, kind of understand them better, I hope. Islam's doctrines, there are five major doctrines in Islam, and I'm not talking about the five pillars, which we'll also discuss later, but the doctrines are the doctrine of God. There's only one God, and His name is Allah. Uh, that's the most common creed of Islam, which is recited daily in Arabic by all Muslims, even if they don't know Arabic. They memorize the Arabic and recite it back from memory. And, of course, they also add to that, and Muhammad is his prophet. Second major doctrine is angels. Angels are the messengers of Allah. Gabriel uh, or Jibril, as they would say, is the chief angel, and there's a fallen angel, 
uh, shaitan as well as followers of shaitan called jinns, demons. Uh, third major doctrine is sacred scriptures. Muslims believe Allah has revealed himself through four books, the Torah of the Bible, which God gave to Moses, the Zabur, or the Psalms of David, the Angel, which is the Gospels in the New Testament, and finally there's the Quran, which they believe supersedes all of the previous. Fourth major doctrine, prophets. The Quran names more than 20 prophets, including six who are held in highest regard. And those six would be Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, Jesus, and Muhammad. They believe that Muhammad is the last and greatest prophet who came uh, to clear up all misunderstandings and corruptions in Judaism and Christianity. And then the doctrine of last things. Islam places great emphasis on the day of judgment. The dead will be resurrected and Allah will judge all people based on their works. And all will be sent either to heaven or hell. Your works will be put on balances. And it is your hope, but you can never know in this life, it is your hope that the balance side of the, the, the side of the scale of good works outweighs the other side. Also, Islam means what? Submission. Uh, there's no concept except among the Sufis that you can actually know Allah. They may know about him, but they cannot know him. There is no such thing as a relationship with Allah. In fact, Muslims take offense at the thought that you can know God and have a relationship with him because to the Islamic mind, this would make God in some way dependent on his creation. Uh, Allah doesn't reveal himself. He only reveals his desires and his wishes. The typical Muslim doesn't even try to know Allah. It's not even a concept they embrace. They only do their prayers and their good deeds or their deeds in submission, showing submission to Allah. But there's no concept of actually knowing him. The five pillars of Islam, we talked about those. The, the shahada, the confession of faith. There is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his messenger. It's got to be said in Arabic. Now, they consider that the entry point into Islam for a person who says this and means it. Then there's the Salat, prayer. All Muslims pray five times a day facing Mecca, the holiest city. Uh, if you're not sure which direction Mecca is, they would say just to, they would, they would uh, say to the fellow Muslim, just do your best whatever direction you think it's in, and that's acceptable. Uh, zakat, tithing, Muslims must give financially to the poor and the needy. This involves giving at least 2.5% of their total wealth. Then the son, the fasting during the holy month of Ramadan, Muslims are to refrain from food, water, and sex from sunrise to sunset. And then the hajj. As far as possible, at least once in a lifetime, Muslims are to travel to Mecca to engage in rituals of prayer and worship at the central shrine in Islam's holiest city. Now, this takes place each year just 
just over two months after the end of Ramadan. And about two million persons, an estimated two million Muslims a year make this journey. And then the Hajj ends with the great feast. Now, as I pointed out in our first session, folks, to carry out the five pillars with the fifth pillar, the, the Hajj, being maybe somewhat future for the typical Muslim, but to carry out the five pillars makes one a Muslim just do those five things, kind of a matter-of-fact way. Practice the five pillars, and that's what they say makes one a Muslim. Now, Muslims are very works-oriented. Muslims are very works-oriented. Take the prayers five times a day, uh, which is one of the five pillars of Islam. The, the prayers are an important way to the Muslim as a way of earning merit and removing sin. A prayer said in a mosque is worth 25 times a prayer said at home or out in the marketplace. The Hadith says that if a Muslim goes to the mosque with the sole intention of saying a prayer, every step he takes toward the mosque is translated into one additional reward in heaven and one sin taken off of his account. Now, during the prayers, the recitation of the Quran uh, to Allah is the basic responsibility showing submission. And as I pointed out in our second session together, the prayers will be accompanied by different postures. They'll, they'll do this, showing that uh, their, their ears are open to, to the words of Allah and the Quran, and then they'll do this, and symbolizing they're wanting to take the words of the Quran into their innermost being, into their gut, into their heart. Uh, they go through extensive washing uh, processes, the, the wadu, W-U-D-U, which precedes the prayers. They'll wash their hands up to their wrists three times. They'll rinse their mouths out three times. They'll sniff water into and through the nostrils three times. They'll thoroughly wash their face from ear to ear and forehead to chin. Uh, they pass a wet hand over their head. They wash the feet up to the ankles three times. The, the right first, then the left, if they do anything to contact any type of defilement, they've got to start all over again. Uh, I mentioned how J.D. Greer, uh, one of our key pastors in the state of North Carolina and in the Southern Baptist Convention now, he lived for a number of years among Muslims in Muslim countries, lived with Muslim families, had a very good relationship with them. He said, uh, now, you, you would think they'd be angry at what I'm about to say he'd, he did, but they did. In front. They'd, he'd wait till they'd, the family had been through all the washings, and he would hide in the hallway when they came down the hallway, and he'd jump out and grab them. And because he'd jumped out and grab, grabbed them, he was, a, he was an unclean Gentile, so they had to go back and start the washing process all over again. And he made a game out of that sometime. <clears throat> Well, during Ramadan, as I mentioned previously, they fast from the first light of day to the last. They can't even drink water, even in a desert climate. But at night, they have a lavish feast. Uh, I told you how it's reported in Muslim countries that during Ramadan, food consumption actually goes up 
great feast at night. Now the Hajj or the trip to Mecca to be taken at least once during your lifetime counts the same amount of merit as 50,000 prayers in a mosque. Some say 100,000. And remember, prayers in a mosque count for more than prayers at home. Um, if you've seen the, the hundreds of thousands of Muslims standing in the square around the Kaaba, the black box, where they believe Abraham sacrificed Ishmael, uh, they're hoping, they're hoping out of those hundreds of thousands there, there is one, there might be one who is worthy enough that Allah is going to hear his prayers. And on behalf of him being worthy enough to represent all of them, Allah will forgive all Muslims. So you can see they, they really crave an intercessor. And I mentioned to you it's reported that many Muslims come back from the Hajj very disappointed and disillusioned. It didn't do for them what they thought it would. Um, I think it shows us that a works righteousness cannot bring peace. To have peace, you have to know who? The Prince of Peace. Okay, let's talk about the Muslim and salvation. The Muslim and salvation. What I've been promising you that we'd look more at. Now, folks, what you and I need to understand in witnessing to a Muslim is that they have a totally different way of looking at things. If you think you are going to pick up a tract out here in our lobby, one of Billy Graham's Steps to Peace with God tracts, or remember the old spiritual laws, Campus Crusade spiritual laws tracts? Do you remember, though, the four spiritual laws? Okay. If you think you're going to pick up one of those tracts and go out and go see a Muslim and sit down with a tract and witness, them, witness to them that way, you've probably got another thing coming. They're not going to respond to that. Now, you might be surprised to know that in Islam, and this is one of your blanks, in Islam, there is no doctrine of salvation that would be a corollary to the Christian doctrine of salvation. In Islam, people don't really have anything to be saved from. Remember, they don't believe in original sin. Now, this doesn't mean that he doesn't believe in sin. They know that they need to be forgiven of sin, uh, sins, but in their minds, forgiveness of sins comes by an act of Allah that he simply declares of his own choosing. They would say that Allah does not need anything such as a sacrifice for sin. You know, in the Old Testament, the animal sacrifices pointing forward to Jesus, the complete sacrifice, they would say, no, no, no. Allah doesn't need any sacrifice for sin like Jesus dying on a cross to satisfy his justice and holiness. Allah simply forgives who he wants, whenever he wants, wherever he wants, by his own declaration. That's all. Christians talk about justification of sin and atonement 
and sacrifice. And to the typical Muslim mind, all of this is nonsense. He doesn't understand it. Allah simply speaks forgiveness. Just as he spoke creation into being, he speaks forgiveness into being. No payment, no sacrifice. Muslims reject any idea of penal substitution that Jesus died in our place on the cross. They do not believe in the ability of anybody to be able to bear somebody else's guilt. They don't even think Allah requires such. Your chances of salvation increasing, and notice I did not say your assurance of salvation, your chances of salvation increasing are all up to you. Plus, the Muslim would say one of Allah's prophets would never die on a cross because, after all, he has a reputation of power to protect. They believe he foiled the crucifixion of Jesus. Judas got substituted in instead. Allah protected one of his prophets and instead the enemies of Allah were shamed and humiliated. Now, when a Muslim denies the cross, it is on the basis of two things. First of all, our sins don't need to be paid for and secondly, God wouldn't be humiliated. God wouldn't be humiliated. Islam teaches that men sin because they freely choose it, not because of any original sin. Men are weak, but they're not depraved. There is no need to be born again. As one Muslim theologian put it, every Muslim is his own redeemer. He bears all possibilities of spiritual success, and failure within his own heart. The next blank you need to fill in, Islam is more about guidance than deliverance from anything. Islam offers men a straight path to walk. Another says of Islamic salvation, it is the escape from the punishment of sin, not from the bondage of sin. It therefore does not involve a change of nature, but the bestowal of the privilege to enjoy sensual pleasures in paradise. Salvation positively conceived refers to the enjoyment of physical effects in a pleasure-laden heaven. End of quote. And so again, rather than salvation, Islam offers guidance. Generally speaking, if you obey all the terms of the guidance, you increase your chances of arriving in paradise. There's no guarantee. There's no assurance. You simply increase your chances. 
And remember I told you last time, Muhammad even rebuked one of his generals uh, for saying that Muhammad had the assurance of salvation. And he pointed out to that general, no, he, he didn't even know if he would ultimately be saved. Muslims believe there are angels recording everything that you do. You have an angel sitting on each one of your shoulders. One's recording the good and one is recording the bad. The Quran says the balance that day, the balance being the divine scales, will be true. Because again, throughout your lifetime, you've got an angel sitting on each shoulder and everything you ever say or do is being recorded. And so when you stand before Allah in the day of judgment, the balances are going to be true because the angels are going to have their accounts there. Those whose scale of good will be heavy will prosper those whose scale will be light will find their souls in perdition. Now, there are things you can do to tip the scale in your favor. I've already alluded to those. You've got to be, they would say the Muslim has got to be uh, faithful in observing all five pillars of Islam. And remember... It's not just the doing of them, but how you do them that can increase your chances. A prayer said in the mosque is, is said to have 25 times the weight of a prayer at home. If said at the congregational gathering on Friday, uh, it carries 500 times the weight. If it's said at Medina or Jerusalem, 50,000 times. Some even say if prayer said during, uh, at the Kaaba in Mecca as prayers said there carry a hundred thousand times the weight of prayers anywhere else. So things are on a graduated scale. Saying the, uh, the Shahada 200 times a day for a year is thought to erase 50 years of sins. What's the Shahada? What, what's that? Somebody tell me what that goes back to the, the first pillar. What is, what is the Shahada? I, say it again. It's the confession of faith. And what is the confession? There is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his prophet. Said in Arabic, 200 times a day for a year, erases 50 years worth of sins. The lifetime trip to Mecca, the Hajj, can totally erase an entire lifetime of sins up to that moment that you make the Hajj. Again, these are ways to increase your chances. Again, even Muhammad himself was unsure of his final destination. Now, a Muslim believes that he can do everything possible to tip the scales in his favor. He can do all the right things that, that I just mentioned. And Allah may suddenly decree without any, without, without any reason whatsoever, Muhammad can, I mean, uh, Allah can suddenly decree that there is no hope for that individual. 
And at that moment, even if the Muslim has done everything to increase his chances of getting into paradise, if Allah just arbitrarily says one day, nope, you're not going to get in, there is no hope of that person ever getting in, regardless of what they do after that. Muslims feel distant from God. They feel like if they do enough, like Adam and Eve, trying to make coverings to protect their nakedness, they may perhaps be loved and accepted by Allah, but they always live in a constant fear that they have not done quite enough. Also, Islam teaches the transcendence of Allah, not the eminence of Allah. Transcendence is what? The otherness. He's, he's out there, way out there, never near. Allah is far removed from humans, and he keeps it that way. Now, while he's transcendent and far away, he has perfect vision and sees everything about you. But again, there is no possibility of fellowship between you and Allah. One Islamic professor says that this is, in his view, the chief difference between Islam and Christianity. That in Islam, Allah is only transcendent, never imminent. Now, the point of salvation in Islam is not to know him, not to know Allah, but to obey him. Muslims can be surprised as they begin reading the Bible at how much self-disclosure there is of God in the Bible. The fact that he walks with people. He hears their prayers. He seems to want to relate to them and reveal himself to them. He's intimate with them. They're, they're surprised to find that when they begin reading the Bible. It's a new concept to them. Now again, the one exception to all this in Islam is which, which faction? Sufism. Right, Sufism. Sufism is... Uh, trying to bring a little more uh, personal attempt to know Allah into Islam. Muslims sense a great need to be clean before Allah. They want to be clean. They want to be purified. We talked earlier about the washings. Now, keep that in mind for a little later tonight because uh, if they believe you have to to go through these ritual washings to be clean on the outside, then what can be done to clean one on the inside? Aha, there's a foothold we have with them in witnessing. I'll come back to that later. Muslims seek an intercessor. They believe that Muhammad will intercede for them to some degree, but again... What was a possibility with Muhammad? He didn't make it. So if he ended up not making it, how can he be an intercessor? Now, uh, let's talk about reaching Muslims. Contrary to what many might think in some ways, as I closed out the last time we were together, uh, 
it is suggested that speaking to a Muslim about heaven and about salvation may be in some ways easier than speaking to your Western neighbor. Because what are we seeing now in the West? What are we seeing across Europe and across America? Excuse me? Atheism and, and just people don't care. You go tomorrow night or knock on your neighbor's door and want to talk to him about Jesus, chances are you're going you're to run into some neighbors that could, could care less. The Muslim, like the Christian though, is very interested in discussing things about God. So contrary to popular belief, you might have more success talking to a typical Muslim about God than you would one of your lost neighbors. There is a certain foundation in the sovereignty of God that, that, we, that Christians and Muslims share together about God. Our Christian, view, our Christian view of God is God has expressed himself in the Bible being sovereign and the foundation for all of life and them believing the same thing about Allah. There's that, there's that foundation that we share together and they want to talk about it. J.D. Greer suggests that when we witness to the Muslim, we, we, we need to think of the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter and their approaches. Now, what's he mean by that? Did Peter and Paul preach the same gospel? Absolutely. There's only one gospel. But what? What approaches did they take? In fact, what did, just look at Paul himself. What did Paul say to the Corinthians that he did differently at times? You with me? He became all things to all men, to the Jew. He, became a, he related the gospel to a Jew in a Jewish way of thinking, to a Gentile in a Gentile way of thinking. Did he change the gospel? No. But he changed his approach. Greer and others are saying when we're witnessing to a Muslim, we've got we've to maybe change our approach with how we would witness to a typical uh, Westerner. As indicated, Muslims have a great sense of the need to be clean and pure. I mentioned that the Muslim will have difficulty with the concept of Jesus dying in your place if you go straight there to that. And so when you get to the place in the four spiritual laws or the steps to peace with God about Jesus dying in your place and bridging the gap, you may have lost them initially. For that reason, uh, scholars suggest leaving your evangelistic tracks at home and not even using them in your approach. We want a nice little quickie approach, don't we? Muslims are more engaged with the gospel when we instead talk about purification or cleansing. 
And Jesus offering that even on the inside. Jesus can cleanse you and purify you not just on the outside, but on the inside. And also concentrate on his victory. Speak to them about how Jesus came to remove our defilement and shame and to defeat the curse of death. Again, point to the cross. You never deny the cross. Paul, Paul said, you know, if I'm going to glory in anything, I glory in the cross. That's the means by which God and his son Jesus has reconciled us to himself. So we talk about the cross, we never deny the cross, but we bring out a different element about the cross. Bring out in time the substitution element, yes, but concentrate on the cleansing element. Listen to what, listen to one testimony he, he gives in here. The story of Diana. Once I asked an Islamic friend to explain to me why she washed as she did. She explained that it was to remove all the nodges with which she had come into contact throughout the day. I asked her what was the most nodges thing of all. Her first answer was pork. She explained that contact with pork required a vigorous sevenfold scrubbing. I then asked her if there was anything that might be filthier to God than pork. After a while, she said she supposed idolatry was the filthiest thing of all to God. I asked her where idolatry took place. She said the heart. I asked, so you cleanse the body vigorously, but how do you cleanse your heart? She said we just repent of our sin and that cleanses us. I objected. You can't just repent of touching the pork. You must also wash. And so how is repentance able to cleanse the heart of idolatry but not the hands of pork, seeing that idolatry is filthier than pork? She thought for a moment and then said, that's a great question. I don't know. I continued. Every time you talk to God, you do so with a filthy heart. It's kind of like your imam came over to eat at your house. You had cleaned up everything in the house to honor his coming. But when it came time to serve dinner, you brought out the head of the pig. According to Jesus, this is what you're doing when you pray with a sin-tainted heart. My friends seem to understand. I explained to her that we Christians believe that the blood of Jesus is the cleansing for the soul. Later on, through this understanding and the continual love and prayer of her Christian friends, she put her faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Greer says many of his Muslim friends were gripped by the story of Jesus cleansing the woman who had the issue of blood. I got a question for you. Have you used that story recently to introduce 
one of your American friends to Jesus Christ, the story of the cleansing of the woman with the issue of blood? Have you used that story? Probably not. That's not the first story you and I would go to in our evangelism. But with Muslims, it's a very powerful story. Because again, it addresses this need of cleansing and purification before God that they sense and that Jesus can do that for them. Also, the Muslim has, has the concept of the Quran being divine. So speak to them about Jesus being the Logos, the Word, and the one himself who unites us with God when he cleanses us. If he is the Logos, the Word, and he lives and unites us with God, then there can be assurance. The Muslim craves assurance because he has none. Also to the Muslim, the resurrection needs to be emphasized. And folks, admittedly in Christianity, we don't, in the preaching of the gospel, we don't emphasize the resurrection enough, do we? When we talk to people about the gospel, what do we emphasize? We emphasize the cross. But go back and read the the preaching of the apostles in the book of Acts. What did, the, what did the apostles emphasize? The resurrection. He's risen from the dead. He's defeated death. And that resonates with the Muslim because, again, he wants to hear about power and victory. So don't stop at the cross. Finish the cross and and tell them about the empty tomb and the resurrection and Jesus' power over sin and death. 1 Corinthians 15. Talk to them also about Christ as their intercessor. And then here's a big one, the one I'm about to bring up. The Muslim initially rejects Jesus' death on the cross because in his mind he thinks that that means that Allah needs a partner in saving somebody. And for a Muslim, for the Muslim mind to think that Allah needs a partner is shirk. It's blasphemy. But folks, hang on a minute. Turn this one around on them. Somebody tell me what I mean about that. Somebody help me out tonight. Come on. How can we turn that one around on them? Okay, you're along, you're along the... The right line. Okay, you're kind of dancing around it. In the Bible, 
salvation is of the Lord. Because we couldn't do it, because we could not partner with God in our salvation, because we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God, He sent His Son uh, to do it for us. God the Son. It's God accomplishing our salvation. Talk to him, turn it around and say, if you stop and think about it, if, if you're having to do all these prayers and all your steps towards the mosque with the intent to pray, you know, you're, you're erasing that many more sins and you're doing this and you're doing that, then who is it trying to partner with Allah? It's you, the Muslim. They're the ones trying to partner with Allah in the Christian understanding of salvation. Again, salvation is all of the Lord. Now, another key in reaching the Muslim is story. This, I think, is your next to the last blank. Story. Muslims are, cu are curious already about many of the people listed in the Bible because the Quran mentions them. The Quran itself in Surah 5, 68 to 69, and in Surah 10, 94, tells the Muslim to consult the people of the book, Christians, for clarification on the details of the lives of the prophets. Muslims are curious about the stories in the Bible. Christians have found it easier to reach a group of Muslims in a Bible study than to reach an individual Muslim. One missionary to Muslims has said, it is easier to group Muslims than to reach them uh, or, or group them and then reach them versus reaching them and then grouping them because they have a tremendous sense of community and they don't want to walk away from one community without knowing they have another. They walk away from the Muslim faith and some fellow Muslims may try to kill them. They want to know that they're also embracing a community or that a community is embracing them. And so one Muslim missionary says, group them and then reach them. Don't try to reach them and then group them. But many of them are amazed and fascinated to hear the whole stories of the people in the Bible because the, the Quran just gives little snippets. And then they, when they turn to the Bible and they, they, they see the whole story in its context, then it creates doubts in their mind. Some say it creates doubts in their mind about the Quran because they say, well, wait a minute. The Quran didn't, didn't tell it that way. And so they will lose some faith in the Quran. The Quran will lose some credibility with them when they read how the story actually goes in the Bible. One last story of, out of this book I want to read to you. The, the power of the story of the Bible. 
For two years, I taught in the university system of a predominantly Muslim republic in Central Asia. And while there, began to interact with Muslims from all over the world, including Pakistanis, Turks, and Arabs. Most of my evenings were spent over dinner in dialogue about Islam and Christianity. Usually the conversation consisted of their attempts to convert me to Islam. Often this took the form of accusations against Christianity. These accusations generally centered on the doctrines of the Trinity, the Incarnation, and the Atonement. I tried answering their questions in straightforward propositional manner, theologically and philosophically. However, I felt as though my words and categories of thought were utterly alien to them. I kept finding myself thinking, but if you would just read the Scriptures, you would understand. If you would just understand the big story, you would understand the details. What I needed was a way of answering their questions that allowed them to see the big picture, the grand narrative of Scripture. My attempt to do this came in August of 1999 as I invited several of my friends, mostly Muslims, to a Bible study in my flat in the middle of the city. The Bible study would be a 20-week endeavor in a Q&A format in which I would assign them a portion of Scripture to read each week, and they would come to the study prepared to answer questions about that text. To my surprise, everyone I invited accepted the invitation. Everyone. All 45 of them. And my flat consisted of only one room. So I divided them into five separate study groups which met on different evenings of the week. From the very first lesson of the study, they were fascinated by the text of Christian Scripture. They began to enter into the world of Scripture and to understand the things that I had been trying to explain to them for over a year. The Bible studies progressed from Genesis, from the Genesis account all the way through the crucifixion and the resurrection. I will never forget this. Nearing the end of our 20-lesson Bible study, as one of my groups realized that the Christ had resurrected, they spontaneously began to applaud. Many of them had become so absorbed in the story and it had become so convincing to them that they found themselves believing. A number of my Muslim friends became believers out of which a church was planted which, which continues to this very day. No, but I think in the back he has some study materials that he recommends. Get Muslims in Bible study groups and just let them read the stories and talk about the stories. Don't go in with the aim of making this point and that point. 
Just read and talk about the stories. And let God do with his word what only God can do with his word. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Help them to see the big story, the big picture. Those working with Muslims say if you and I are going to sit down and try to reach a Muslim in our typical American way when we go out to evangelize somebody, we want to pay somebody a visit. Again, we want to we share a quickie presentation of the four spiritual laws, steps to peace with God, uh, EE, evangelism explosions, faith. We want to share one of these programs and lead somebody there on the spot in about uh, 30 to 40 minutes in their home. We want to lead them to faith in Jesus Christ. And with a Muslim, it's not going to work that way. That if we want to reach them, we've got to invite them to take part in Bible studies and spend time with them just reading and discussing the stories. And he suggests when you, when you do some of these Bible studies, do some studies that maybe could connect the Old and New Covenant together, showing the storyline of the Bible, how it begins and continues and how it finishes. Help them to put the whole, whole story together. But the key is... It's going to take time. It's going to take the church today or college kids on campus where they have a lot of uh, Muslim fellow students, professors on, Christian professors on campus, sitting down with Muslims over a long period of time and investing in them enough to read the Bible, but again, just reading the Bible. Who was it that said, was it Charles Spurgeon? Who, who was it that said, just uh, open the Bible, start reading, and it's like turning a lion loose? Was that C.S. Lewis? C.S. Lewis or Charles Spurgeon? Anyway, that's the approach you take with them. And that's how we're going to have to change our thinking in witnessing to the Muslim. Yes. And that's what he says. Take a story like that and trace it through the Old Testament sacrifice and do a study over a number of weeks that would tie all the sacrifices together and then point to how Jesus is the Lamb of God. He said stories like that. And I, I think to answer your question, I believe at the end of the book he has some recommendations to make. But, but, but stories where you can help them see the big picture. And again, they want to do that. They want to find out more about the Bible. I saw another hand back there. That, that's one of the anomalies of the Quran, and the, uh, the difference I told you between the earlier writings and the later writings and how they're all mixed together. The surahs are all mixed together. There's no chronological order. The early writings of Muhammad, he was saying, 
Go, go ask the people of the book. Talk to the Jews. Talk to the Christians. But then after he had fled to Medina because Jews and Christians had pointed out the errors in his doctrine and that he was a fraud and all and he had left and fled to Medina, then he became more violent, more of a warrior and was then saying, kill the Christians and the Jews. And so in the Quran, you, you find this, you find both. You know, um, the earlier writings, you find more of the peaceful stuff. And then the later writings, you can find, I believe I, I mentioned there's between 106 and 164 verses in the Quran that can be used as justification for violence. And it comes out of the later writings. And as um, Norman Geisler points out, uh, Muslims are going to have to account for those verses that call for violence because, again, some of their radicals, those are the, those are the verses that they're using. But that's the, that's the difference you'll find how, on the one hand, they, they might be speaking well of Christians or Jews and, on the other hand, saying kill them. But anyway... Uh, Emphasize in presentations of the gospel, emphasizing how Jesus purif washes us clean by his shed blood. Purification, emphasize that rather than substitution initially. You can get around to the other. But purification, emphasize victory, the victory of the resurrection, the, the victory over the grave over the tomb uh, and story just get them in the Bible reading the stories and talking about the stories and going in again not trying to say let me make point one point two point three but rather sitting down saying let's just read these stories together reading the Gospels remember the angel the Gospels they, they believe in the angel, the gospels. Get them reading the four gospels together in a Bible study. Um, everybody says that's the way to reach them. That's, that's the emphasis to take with them. Get them to see our common humanity back, back to the roots. Okay. Okay. Uh, I hope you've gotten something out of this, the three weeks that we've met and talked. Let's close in prayer. Would you stand, please? It's late. Uh, appreciate your, your time and interest and attention. Uh, Dr. Patterson, if you dismiss us in prayer.